Welcome to Crashing the War Party. My name is Kelly Vlahos, and I am joined each week by my stalwart co-host, Daniel Larison, as we play round robin with the multitudes of foreign policy and national security outrages inside and outside the Beltway. Today, Caroline Gray of the Eurasia Group Foundation is going to give us the scoop on a new poll of American voters that may want to make you go, hmm. But first, the Biden administration last week called together over a dozen Pacific Island leaders for the first ever summit at the White House. Diplomatically, you could say this meeting was overdue. Outreach to often overlooked partners and would-be partners Critics would suggest, however, the Biden administration might be getting nervous that China has been spreading its influence around these islands and Washington feels the need to play catch up. In any case, the president said, quote, a great deal of the history of our world is going to be written in the Indo-Pacific over the coming years and decades. And the Pacific Islands are a critical voice in shaping that future. So at the end of the two day affair, the, House, the White House signed a wide-ranging agreement with the leaders of 14 nations, including Cook Islands, Federated States of Micronesia, Fiji, French Polynesia, Nauru, New Caledonia, Palau, Papua New Guinea, Republican, Republic of Marshall Islands, Samoa, Solomon Islands, Tonga, Tuvalu, Vanuatu, and as well as the U.S. also signing so basically, the statement included over $810 million in new money for development and aid to the region, a bolstering trade, economic resilience, and civic leadership among leaders, security cooperation, cybersecurity and technical connectivity, public health security, cooperation to fight climate change, and a host of more issues. Interestingly, according to the AP this week, the Solomon Islands agreed to sign the accord between the U.S. and more and these Pacific nations only after indirect references to China were removed. The Solomon Solomon Islands foreign minister told press on Tuesday, he was quoted saying, there were some references that put us in a position where we'll have to choose sides, and we did not want to be placed in a position where we would have to choose sides, said Jeremiah Manelli, um, who um, was in Wellington at the time. You know, His remarks represented the first time the Solomon Islands had publicly acknowledged that it had concerns about the agreement and expressed why it had a change of heart. So what do you think, Dan? Is this the first best impulse the Biden administration has had with regard to engagement with this region? Or is it a self-interested way to lock down the neighborhood in an alliance against China or maybe something in between? So it's interesting that there's been this uh, sudden surge of interest on the part of Washington in Pacific states uh, where Washington has typically been neglecting them and, and and doing very little to cultivate those relationships over the last really the last thirty years, uh, and and it's it's clear that the the impetus for that has been uh, this fear of growing Chinese influence that you were referring to. Of course, the the security agreement that the Chinese made with the Solomon Islands was one of the more more high profile examples of this uh, that got uh, top uh, U.S. officials scrambling to go uh, to the Solomon Islands to try to. Uh, dissuade them from going ahead with this agreement. Of course, the the effort to try to to clamp down on them backfired, and the Solomon Islands protested against uh, intrusions on their sovereignty. And so that that, that really illustrates uh, 
the, the, the key problems the U.S. has in dealing with these states where there's a, a desire to keep them out of a Chinese sphere of influence uh, by, by essentially trapping them in one of our own. And the, the many of the Pacific states don't want to be uh, trapped in either one. They don't want to have to choose, as you were saying. Uh, so I, I think the the interest in cultivating better relations with these states is uh, a good idea. But I think the, the fact that it is so constantly framed and, and driven by this anti-Chinese preoccupation that Washington has uh, is, is a real problem because it, it inevitably means that we're not paying attention to the interests and concerns of these states uh, in and of themselves, but only as a, a means to the, the end of building up an anti-China coalition that these states don't want to be part of. And so I, I think it ends up being self-defeating in that way when we could be trying to work to improve relations with these states uh, for their own sake and for, for the benefit that that would bring to us as well uh, without thinking of it in terms of this great power rivalry that everyone wants to, to shoehorn it into. Uh, one, one of the, the striking things about the Biden administration's approach to the Pacific states is how, uh, how badly things have gone in terms of build or shoring up the relationships with some of our closest partners. And so ahead of the, the big summit that took place last week, the Marshall Islands announced that they were suspending the, the talks over the renewal of the Compact of Free Association, that is uh, the, the treaty that binds the Marshall Islands to the United States along with uh, Federated States of Micronesia and Palau. And this is uh, a treaty that will expire next year uh, in two of those cases. Uh, for Palau, it's the year after that, I think. And that treaty uh, needs to be renewed in order to keep the security benefits for the U.S. Uh, that it has had uh, over the last several decades, uh, and also to provide the economic and aid benefits that go uh, to these uh, Pacific states. And the reason for the Marshall Islands uh, objecting to these negotiations or refusing to continue the negotiations is that the U.S. has still not made good in their eyes on uh, making amends for the damage done by nuclear testing uh, that took place in the early Cold War, uh, late 1940s up through the 50s. And these are tests, dozens of nuclear tests, that have devastating ecological and health effects on the populations of these islands. And so these, their government is naturally interested in getting uh, more assistance from the U.S. than they've been getting. And, and the U.S. position has essentially been uh, to, to ignore this demand or to, to minimize it. And so here we have one of the, the states that should logically be one of our closest partners in the Pacific and has been one of our closest partners. And, and we're basically telling them uh, that we're not going to, to go along with something that's extremely important to them. Hmm. Uh, at the same time that we're so desperately scrambling to shore up influence with all these other states. And so it's, uh, I think it's a, it's a real failing on the part of the Biden administration, which is, it's a broader failing. Uh, it's not just this administration, it's a broader failing that the U.S. has had in dealing with these partners going back a long way. Um, and so we, we really ought to be taking, taking more seriously the concerns that these other states have uh, if we want to have solid partnerships with them over the decades to come. 
So you're saying that the Marshall Islands issue is not in this agreement, um, which is which is interesting because there does seem to be a quite a laundry list. So I got up the fact sheet in front of me right now. And, you know, they do address some uh, they say the scars of war across the Pacific region. And the issue that is laid out here um, is uh, addressing exploded ordnance issues uh, in Palau, um, in the Solomon Islands, and uh, in uh, the options for Kiribati and the Marshall Islands. Um, But it doesn't, no, you're right. It doesn't mention any of these other long-standing issues. There is something at the top of the fact sheet that mentions um, uh, the, um, I'm I'm sorry, I'm going to try to get to it. It, It's a rather long document, uh, but it does talk about um, the issue of um, sovereignty, but not not the Marshall Islands. It talks about the recognition of Cook Islands and new the United the States recognized yeah. the Cook Islands and you as sovereign states following appropriate consultations. So it does seem like there is an a la carte here. Granted, I don't have the entire agreement laid out in front of me, um, but it does seem like there are probably um, a, probably a, a dozen State Department officials working on this, and, and some things got in and, and, and some things did not. Um I would like to ask you a little bit about the security element of this. This seems to be buried in there, but to me that this is probably the most important thing for the Biden administration right now is to seal some sort of, and I think they were talking about some sort of partnership or organization of these Pacific islands with the United States akin to um, AUKUS where you had um, ongoing level of cooperation, intelligence sharing, other security connections, um, which obviously implicit in that is to ward off, you know, uh, encroaching Chinese influence. What what do you make of that um, element in this whole ordeal? Yeah, well, I I mean, I think the the U.S. wants to to emphasize security cooperation uh, as much as it does, because that's really one of the areas where the U.S. has something that it can tangibly offer these states uh, right away. Uh, one of the the weaknesses that the U.S. has in dealing with these states and with lots of other regions is that it, it's our our foreign policy is so heavily militarized uh, because so many of our resources go to the military that that's that's really the one tool that we have that we can uh, propose uh, to to use in, in building relationships with these states. And so that that ends up becoming sort of the default in all of our dealings. And and we, we don't provide the same sorts of resources in any of the other areas uh, to, to the same extent. And, and so security ends up looming largest. Uh, but I think that also has the, the potential to alienate certain states uh, insofar as they see that as pulling them into our orbit uh, at the expense of their uh, economic ties, uh, for example, to China, uh, which, they, of course, they, they can't afford to give up because they, they need all of the investment uh, and assistance that they can get. And China has been involved in that very heavily now 
uh, for many decades while we've been essentially oblivious. And so uh, while, while I'm sure many of these states will appreciate security cooperation uh, within limits, uh, they don't want that to lock them into any sort of alliance or coalition system uh, that, that some people may be hoping to create uh, as a result of this. Yeah, I mean, I would imagine the benefit to these particular islands as all the are all the other goodies that are in there and all of these pledges for cooperation and assistance, you know, which is ranging from everything from, you know, uh, you know dealing with um, their trade disputes and issues and um, increased trade cooperation to bringing their leaders here and get getting trained at Johns Hopkins, you know, strategic international studies um, school, uh, you know, to, 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 you know, to better their, you know, civic, um, you know, and, and, and democratic, you know, whatever strategies in, in their respective countries. So I feel like we are throwing a lot at them. We might have a selfish purpose for it. I noted that uh, that China was also seeking region-wide deals, security deals, with um, almost a, a dozen Pacific Island countries back in May. I don't know where that went. I, we know that they signed, like you mentioned, the one with the Solomon Islands. So the race is on, I feel like, for the influence and security of this region and the best that I believe that these Pacific Island countries can get from it is get as much from the United States and money and assistance and cooperation that you possibly can while you can. Right. And when I think that's maybe where that they're going to, where they're going to be disappointed. Uh, one of the things that was interesting I saw in the last uh, week commenting on the, the declaration that came out from the summit and, and on the summit itself uh, came from Van Jackson, uh, who's international relations scholar based in New Zealand. Uh, and he wrote about this, and, and he has a, a really great title for his post uh, on his newsletter. He said, uh, "Washington doing the Pacific dirty while looking clean," mm. uh, and I think I think that captures I mean, that captures his view of it, which is that it on the surface a lot of it sounds great, a lot of it looks like the we're doing the right kinds of things, we're talking about the right kinds of things, but the the areas that we're purposefully neglecting or that we're we're not paying attention to. Uh, really end up undermining uh, a lot of the rhetoric that we're hearing from Washington. And so uh, Jackson writes uh, in sort of his summary, uh, talking about the declaration and the summit, it says it has the right tone, uses the right buzzwords, but it's the administration once again cashing in on photo ops and press releases mm. and glossy fluff while deferring a lot of details and implementation to another day. He says, that's not what the Pacific needs. Worse, it's all masking hypocrisy and deep injustices that are at the very core of why Washington finds itself scrambling to do something about the Pacific in the first place. And then he, he elaborates further in his post. That's, and that's at the Undiplomatic Newsletter that he does uh, in conjunction with his podcast. And uh, so if anyone wants to read the whole thing, uh, you can go find it there. Uh, but I thought that summary really captured the, the key problem uh, in our dealings with the estates uh, where we, we basically talk a good game about self-determination and sovereignty and respect for the independence of these states. But then in a lot of the things that we do, we either subtly or, or blatantly undermine those principles. Uh, well, one of the other points that Jackson makes and calls attention to is 
you know, he talks, we talk a lot about self-determination and the importance of that and, and every country having its own choice, but we still have specific colonies, uh, the ter- territories that we rule, uh, where they're not allowed to have a say in their own governance and where they're exposed to the risks of being part of our country, uh, without having a say in the policies that affect them. Uh, and specifically Guam being the, the chief one is exposed the most to potential dangers from North Korea and China. And uh, you have people in Guam who are now moving towards uh, trying to seek some kind of self-determination and Washington essentially ignoring uh, what they want. Uh, and then that's a, that's, and that was also ignored again at the summit. And so that was, that was another one of the points that Jackson was making about why the summit uh, was, was long on rhetoric and, and short on substance. Yeah, that's a good point um, that you're making. And I've heard similar complaints uh, from advocates who are watching African issues that uh, the president and, um, you know, members of his cabinet will often go to these African states and make a lot of proclamation about money and aid and assistance and cooperation that they're dealing out, um, and the the devil is in the details. A lot of it is it's about follow through, and a lot of the money never gets there. What does come through is the military assistance and the training and the counterterrorism programs. Those always seem to happen. Um, so yeah, I mean, I, I completely agree. There, it seems like there's two things here. There is what's left out of the agreement in terms of the real needs of these Pacific Island countries and, and communities and leaders and promises that possibly will never um, see the light of day. Our guest today is Caroline Gray. She's a senior researcher at the Eurasia Group Foundation, producer of their podcast, None of the Above, and the co-author of a new report on their latest survey of what Americans think about U.S. foreign policy and the U.S. role in the world. Welcome to the show. Thanks so much for having me. Uh, Yeah, it's our pleasure. We're looking forward to hearing more about what your survey found. Uh, And so starting uh, very generally, uh, what, what did the survey find in terms of how much and what kind of international engagement the public supports? And how does that break down along partisan lines? Sure. So we interviewed um, a little over 2,000 voting age Americans um, and asked them detailed questions about um, their beliefs on defense spending and policies of the Biden administration and how they think we should respond to um, Russia's war in Ukraine and the rise of China. Um, A lot of different things. And this is the fifth year of our survey. And typically what we have found at least in the first four years, is that there seems to be um, an interest overall in an engaged uh, United States in the world, um, but that is much more engaged diplomatically than militarily. Um, And that seems to um, go across party lines um, in terms of the breakdown, you know, age-wise, younger Americans tend to be more interested um, and that sort of diplomatic engagement um, than older Americans. But but overall, that's typically what we find. And this year was pretty interesting, um, you know, given the context of the war in Ukraine um, and America's response to it. We are definitely seeing a bit of a 
an increase in, um, you know, Americans' interest in the U.S. taking an active role, especially in that conflict. So we're seeing, um, especially among Democrats, um, you know, more survey takers who think that, um, you know, the U.S. needs to be in the business of, of helping kind of, you know, defend democracy overseas and fight, you know, the rise of authoritarianism. So there's definitely a bit of a change um, this past year. And again, I think in the context of of the war in Ukraine and all the rhetoric surrounding America's, um, you know, need to to be involved, I think that makes sense. Erwan, and specifically in terms of an active role in Ukraine, well, how, how active of a role are Americans willing to support uh, the government uh, being involved in? Uh, what uh, are, are the, what are the limits of that support uh, that you found? Sure. So um, on the topic of, of NATO, which is related, um, a majority of Democrats and Republicans um, think that, you know, for instance, Finland and Sweden joining NATO um, is a positive thing and would benefit the United States. Um, which is interesting given that we've asked this question in past years, like a hypothetical question about, you know, how um, interested Americans are in, you know, our Article 5 commitments and, and defending a NATO ally if they were invaded. And there was less support in previous years than there was this year. So that's kind of an interesting finding. Um, but more than two and a half times as many Democrats um, as Republicans want to see the U.S. increase its diplomatic engagement, um, you know, on on the issue of Russia and Ukraine. So um, we didn't get into the specifics about, you know, arms sales or specific policies about uh, Ukraine and Russia, but there does seem to be an interest overall um, in helping to, to bring the war to an end. And actually, on that note, there is an interesting finding. We did ask what the most um, important goals are with respect to the United States' policy towards uh, Russia's invasion of Ukraine. And the most popular answer option among what the goal should be is avoiding direct war between the United States and Russia. Um, and so, and the, and the least popular goal was weakening Russia to punish it for its aggression. So there does seem to be um, a bit of a discrepancy in terms of what policymakers in Washington are wanting um, there seems to be a desire among policymakers to to weaken Russia, to to make them pay for what they've done. Um, but the biggest thing on the minds of, of these survey takers is avoiding a direct war. And um, I, I took a look. I know you guys put out some really great um, survey data at Quincy, um, which shows that, you know, people are interested in a diplomatic you know settlement. Um, and that's not something we we asked our survey takers about, but. Thing that goes hand in hand with potentially avoiding a direct war. Right. And uh, switching to Iran, one of the interesting findings that I saw in uh, some of your top line numbers is that there's uh, really overwhelming public support for continuing the negotiations to revive the nuclear deal with Iran. Uh, of course, this is very much another case where there's a, a big disconnect between what people in Washington are saying about the nuclear deal versus what the public is saying. Um, in Washington, of course, it's perceived as a big risk for Biden, uh, a political liability. Uh, what, what do you think accounts for that huge disconnect between this 80% support for continuing talks out in the country and the, the much more uh, hostile reception in Washington? Yeah, that's a really great question. And it, it is like one of our most interesting findings, I think, that nearly 80% 
of survey takers do support um, the Biden administration negotiating a return to the nuclear deal. And on top of that, um, Democrats and Republicans are essentially equally supportive of that. So you might think uh, based on um, Republican administrations um, in the past that Republicans might not support this deal. But just looking at my numbers now. um, 70% Republicans, right? 70% of Republicans uh, support um, the return to the deal and 88% of Democrats uh, support a return to the deal. So that's not um, too far. A majority of Republicans still support this. So um, to your question about, you know, what accounts for this, this discrepancy, um, I don't know. I think the American public and American voters are not interested in war. They're not interested in, in policies of aggression. We want to see, they want to see more diplomacy. They want to see um, less conflict in the world. And so it makes sense that they would be interested in these kinds of negotiations if it means, um, you know, a less, a less dangerous world. Um, but that might not be a uh, top of mind for, for policymakers who are thinking um, about, about different interests the U S has about, um, you know, different, different issues in the region. So uh, that, that was pretty interesting. Hi, Caroline. Thank you for coming on. Really appreciate it. And um, thank you for all the the work that you are doing um, with the foundation and for this annual survey, which I find very enlightening. I wanted to get back to the um, the partisan um, aspect. Um, and I'm looking at, you know, some top lines uh, before the embargo here because we're not going to um, we're, we won't be publishing this till Friday. Um, but you did mention that slightly, and I, I'm seeing in my top lines here, slightly more than two and a half times as many Democratic survey takers and Republican respondents want to see more engagement. Conversely, more than five times as many Republican responses, respondents as Democrats sur- survey takers want to see less engagement. Can you talk a little bit about that? Because you mentioned diplomatic engagement. Was that how the the question was framed or would that even include military engagement and as a second follow-up or a follow-up what do you make of 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 this this partisan divide sure so i think you know to your question about you know why are we seeing this partisan divide i mean i think a lot of issues um you know in the media and and um you know get broken down along partisan lines um which is actually why i was surprised to see so much support among republican survey takers for the iran nuclear deal Um, but certainly, um, you know, Republicans are less supportive of how the Biden administration has responded to the war in Ukraine than Democrats. Um, you know, there, there does seem to be, um, you know, a discrepancy there. I mean, what we found was that Democrats tend to be more hawkish, um, in their desire for involvement in Europe and Republicans seem to be more hawkish in their desire for more military involvement um, in East Asia against the rise of China. And that might have to do with um, the Trump administration's, um, you know, hawkish rhetoric towards China. Um, So that's kind of an interesting discrepancy as well. Um, But overall, you know, looking at, you know, the questions we asked about the war in Afghanistan, about NATO, about Iran, there does seem to be, you know, more alignment among Democratic and Republican survey takers than some may think, given how polarized things are. And I think that's really important to point out that there is 
you know, a lot of issues that we can agree on and that we should, you know, focus more on that, especially as we head into election season and as things get ugly. But the engagement itself, the two and a half times as many Democrats, mm. is that was that diplomatic specifically or was it more a broad question of engagement? Yeah, so that was a question um, that focused on diplomatic engagement on issues of, I think, um, you know, climate change, human rights, trade, things like that. And again, that makes sense, you know, given that the Trump administration, um, you know, pulled the U.S. out of different agreements, different treaties, um, like the Iran nuclear deal, like the um, Paris Climate Agreement. And so I think some of that rhetoric does play a role in Republicans being less interested in that kind of diplomatic engagement. Um, but again, it, it, it doesn't, um, that's not the case over all the questions we asked. Um, just that specific question was about kind of diplomacy on transnational issues like climate change, human rights, human rights, things like that. Um, yeah. I know we're talking a lot about nuclear weapons these days with the possible potential threat of Russia using them in Ukraine, there were several questions, I believe, in the survey about how Americans were feeling about mm -hmm. that threat. Can you talk a little bit about the partisan divide there or overall how Americans are feeling towards the potential use of nuclear weapons? Sure, absolutely. Um, so... We asked uh, our survey takers if they are concerned about nuclear weapons and asked them to pick, um, you know, a statement that best reflects their views. Um, and a majority over over half of our survey takers um, said yes, that they are concerned with nuclear weapons, um, but for different reasons. So the most, um, you know, popular rationale for why they are concerned um, is that they could get into the hands of rogue countries or non-state actors like terrorists that cannot be deterred, um, which is kind of interesting given that, um, you know, we, we aren't really, well, that, that's, that's interesting, but um, you'd think the most popular answer option would be maybe uh, that had to do with Russia, Russia, the United States. Um, but people do seem to, to be concerned um we also broke, looked at this question, um, sorry, um, just uh, looking at the, the data here. Um, it, it was interesting while you're looking that you sure. also polled for military service and how military service members feel about nuclear weapons and the whole deterrence question. I thought that was interesting. Um, definitely. No, that's definitely an interesting breakdown. Um people who have uh, served or are currently serving in the military um, are more likely to be less concerned about um, the spread of nuclear weapons and their use than people who have not served, um, which is which is pretty uh, interesting finding. Um, and, and to your question about the, the partisan breakdown, um, it, it does break down um, in an interesting way along party lines. One in five Democrats um, are not concerned with nuclear weapons um, compared to more than a third of Republicans who who are. Um, so Republicans are a little more concerned about this issue than Democrats are. Hmm. That's interesting. Um, uh, coming back to another question about uh, war or, or views of war that the public has, uh, one of the things that I was struck by is that the, the numbers on 
the question of withdrawal from Afghanistan mm. are basically uh, consistent uh, year on year, where two thirds of the country was in favor of the withdrawal last year, and then uh, over a year after it's happened, the, the numbers are pretty much the same, right? And so I was I was struck by that because there's a, a conventional view that withdrawing from Afghanistan really hurt Biden uh, politically in terms of his public support and his approval rating. And you can, I mean, you can even see it on the graph where his approval rating sort of cratered at that point uh, and didn't recover for a long time. Uh, so it's it's curious to me then that despite all that, the, the basic view of the public is that it was right to get out of Afghanistan. And so that Biden essentially did what they wanted and he did the the popular thing, but somehow, I guess, because of the way it was executed, uh, he didn't benefit from that. Um, uh, what What did you find in terms of the breakdown uh, in terms of support for withdrawal? Uh, is there a big difference in in uh, partisan responses, or is it is there a generally broad agreement that getting out was the right thing to do? Sure. Yeah, I I also think this is one of our most uh, interesting findings this year that. Um, support uh, for the withdrawal remained consistent um, with the majority of respondents thinking that it was, um, you know, the right move. And um, we asked kind of, instead of asking, you know, do people support the policy of withdrawal or not, or not, uh, we asked, you know, what the most important lessons from the war are. And the most popular um, answer option among all respondents was that the war in Afghanistan had a failed mission from the start, and that the U.S. military, you know, should not be in the business of nation building. Um, and that's a pretty interesting takeaway that that was, um, you know, the major thing on the minds of these survey takers. Um, it does break down um, a little bit differently along partisan lines, um, although a majority of Republicans and Democrats um, both, you know, selected um, answer options that showed um that this was the, the right move. And so I think there is, you know, broader support among both uh, sides of the aisle than, than we realize, um, even though it was, um, you know, portrayed so so horribly in the media, um, it seems to be like it was the, the popular decision. Caroline, I know we only got a minute or two left, but I mean, just bringing it all together, it does seem, or do you get a sense that there is, a disconnect. And, you know, pretty much we're seeing that in the Afghanistan and the Iran results of the survey, but a disconnect between how people are feeling and talking about and thinking about foreign policy issues and the headlines we're seeing in the, the media and the policies that we're seeing driven in Washington. Mm -hmm. I, I know one survey can't say it all, mm -hmm. but is there a sense that we should be paying more attention to what people people are saying as opposed to uh, trying to read other tea leaves in Washington. Definitely. I think that, um, you know, is kind of the impetus behind this survey is to really, you know, take seriously um, public opinion. Public opinion, of course, shouldn't drive all policy decisions, but it is really interesting to see kind of how um, big of a divide there is between uh, what policymakers are doing and what the American public wants. I mean, uh, you know, this was another really interesting finding. Close to 80% of both Republican and Democratic survey takers support um, greater congressional oversight over the use of force. They support um, 
you know, these resolutions to end, you know, unchecked executive authority over war making abilities. And, you know, there have been um, um, great efforts in Congress to do this, but it hasn't happened yet. And it's been decades. Um, And so, you know, that certainly shows uh, the divide. Um, The other thing that we haven't talked about was, you know, America's response to, um, you know, the rise of China and Taiwan, which is a very Um, you know, heated issue right now. And we actually found this year that there was a um, decline in interest in the U.S., um, you know, protecting Taiwan militarily if China were to invade, which is interesting given, um, you know, uh, Speaker Pelosi's visit to Taiwan and kind of the um, comments President Biden has made about um, United States coming to Taiwan's defense should should China invade. So, um, you know, even though we're seeing, you know, a little bit of movement in terms of the public's desire to play an active role in the world, it's still clear that, um, you know, the American public is not war hungry. They want diplomacy in a lot of different areas um, and aren't interested necessarily in, in um, you know, fighting these wars for the sake of them, but to, but to really um, avoid confrontation. And so I think that's really uh, an important takeaway. Definitely. And and that's an interesting point about the, the Taiwan numbers. I would have, I would have expected based on the media coverage that public response would have become more supportive of us intervention in Taiwan right. rather than less. So Definitely. how much of a decline are you seeing but what, what are the numbers um, on that? About an eight percentage point um, decrease um, huh. from from last year when we asked the same question. Wow, interesting. Okay, and so that well that that suggests to me that as the the risks of a, a real conflict over Taiwan increase, uh, the public's appetite for that conflict will uh, go down. Mm. And that's uh, that's I mean, that may be one reason for it. I don't know. Uh, we would have to dig deeper into that probably but uh i'm afraid that's all the time we have for now but uh thank you so much for coming on to talk to us uh carolyn gray of the eurasia group foundation uh, we appreciate it thanks so much daniel thanks so much kelly thank you thank you again for tuning into today's episode If you enjoy and value real conversations such as these, please leave us a five-star rating on your favorite podcaster of choice. Right now, Crashing the War Party can be found on Stitcher, TuneIn, and at Substack at crashingthewarparty.substack.com, where you can also sign up for our newsletter. Special thanks to our editor, Remzo W. Martinez, the Crashing the War Party team, and to you, our listeners. Let's create a more peaceful world, one episode at a time.